Hello and welcome back. This is Miss Macintosh, my darling commentary, and we are on chapter 14. I fell down a serious wormhole in chapter 14, and we'll get into it a little bit. Not all of it made it into, uh, only a, a little bit of it made it into this commentary. I won't talk on it a lot. Uh, that will be saved for the third book in the series where we really get into symbolism, themes, and relationships. But it, so it's kind of playing on that, on the theme that I'd thought of before. Like there's so many religious uh, references uh, in the book. And Catherine really reminded me of a monk pulling back into a monastery. And Mr. Spitzer was there. And then their conversation in chapter 14 reminded me of something else. And uh, so anyways, we'll get into it. We, I'm, and I don't know if we'll get into it today because this chapter is long. So. I'm pretty sure I, I'll have to break it up into two parts. Chapter 14, character list, Vera Cartwheel, Catherine Cartwheel, the Black Coachman, Joachim Spitzer, Perone Spitzer, Clam Digger Manservant of Mr. Spitzer. Um, I know I looked up the names Joachim and Perone to see what they mean, but I think I put them under uh, symbolism, so I'll probably have to move that out of there and um, make a reference to it somewhere in, in here when they're first mentioned in the book. The synopsis, the black coachman's subplot is introduced. Catherine talks more about her family and philosophy. Mr. Joachim Spitzer includes his thoughts and more about him and his dead twin brother, Perone. Catherine and the twin brothers, Spitzer's relationship is explored. Paragraph one, Vera comes to the grave of the black coachman and we learn a little more about her maternal family. So Vera is still outside, so get caught up. Vera, it's her, the early morning after her birthday party, her birthday, and she has decided to wander outside even though she's been told not to. She's in the garden, she's seen everything that uh, is close, everything about the uh, the house, and it appears that they're, they have a graveyard. Uh, you know, big manor houses used to have a graveyard for the family on the, pro on the property. So apparently there is a graveyard, so she's still outside, but she's also decided she's hungry and will be headed back inside shortly. So we cut to Catherine and Mr. Spitzer. Well, Vera's, Vera's mentioning the black coachman. So that's why it's Vera mentioning the black coachman. Hope that makes sense. There were her grandfather, blind grandmother, and on the father's side, an unmarried aunt. I'm thinking this might be cousin Hannah, which will come up later in the book, and a blind great-grandmother. Catherine was the last surviving heir to, well, yeah, Catherine is, but I guess, why would Vera be? I don't know. Vera's mother is obsessed with a black coachman whose grave she believed was hypothetical and changing for she had not visited it for years and perhaps never had visited it. She had arranged, however, that the black coachman should visit her. Catherine had arranged the grave site to mirror the sounds of the black coachman as he rode his carriage. Three, Catherine says she would ask Mr. Spitzer whether he knew where the black coachman was now and if her instructions for his burial with the carriage and horses were followed. If she knew this, she would know whether she was right and often hearing on a sunken avenue the clop-clopping of hooves, whether there might be at least this certainty in the midst of times trans-shifting and perceptions distorted and seas whirling and dreams repeating themselves as if they had another life. A horse and carriage English idiom means that something is outdated. Symbolism of a horse and carriage are the horse represents the emotional body, the carriage is the physical body, and the driver the mental body of a person. I left that here, uh, but later on in the, cha in the chapter, Kara Catherine says specifically what those things mean to her, but they're very similar to what I put here, so I went ahead and left it. 
Funerals were traditionally drawn by horse and carriage before being replaced by automobiles. Even in the present day, there are, they are still used by the wealthy for a famous person or significant death, or by someone wanting a special funeral procession. Four, Mr. Spitzer was usually so careful to try to please her, his dark lady, with her endless torments, but as to the black poachman's present whereabouts, he maintained his silence, perhaps because he believed the answer would be ridiculous, and he would make no answer, perhaps because he had been over the disputed ground so often before. He couldn't understand Catherine's obsession about the black coachman. Port Cocher is an elaborate doorway where vehicles enter the street. His own impersonal theory was that the dead were never angry, that they had attained, as he would have liked to have expressed it, perfect silence. Five, Vera explains my mother believed, though, that there were two worlds, just as there had been two Spitzers, both continuing, though one could not now be seen. There was always the invisible world which she saw around her, was there not? Her drug division provided more of reality than reality provided. Catherine describes Joachim, the Spitzer brother she did not love, the lesser one, the lawyer with the broken law practice, the recessive mentality, the forgetfulness, the evasiveness, the taciturn regrets. Catherine describes herself as a poor, hallucinated invalid obsessed by voices which could not be heard by Mr. Spitzer because of his dead ear. She thought the black coachman was gallant because he had always offered her his hand. Or galleon, sorry. Six, Mr. Spitzer believes where the black coachman was would make no difference. However, in the conduct of this world, for this world would be the same chaos, the same madness rolling like waves around our heads, it would not make a difference into Catherine's life. Seven, Catherine disagrees. Nothing should be missing from the chaos, not one leaf that ever fell. It was the black coachman upon whom all things depended. It had been the black coachman who had already circled through endless chaos, driving the four white horses on and on until the end was the beginning. Catherine believes if she could find the black coachman, she could perhaps find herself the bewildered passenger. White horses in mythology are often associated with the sun chariot, warrior heroes, fertility, and an end-of-time savior. The white horses also show up uh, with Esther Longtree at the end of the novel. 8. Catherine claims the black coachman was a landmark to her. She blames Mr. Spitzer for having lost it. Hello. Well, hello, sweetie. Go up there and eat. Hey, why, what is wrong with my hummingbird feeder? Oh, that come around the porch. Okay. Where was I? Cat. Oh. Okay, Catherine remarks that her father did not take care of his servant while he was alive, but provided for the black coachman upon his death. Catherine expanded on that by wanting him buried in all his finery so that he might crack the coachman's whip driving the horses under the earth. Nine, Catherine insisted it was the coachman's idea to keep the carriage and horses. In the present or after, he was dead is not clear. Catherine had agreed and made it part of her last will and testament, and Mr. Spitzer shouldn't forget. It is problematic, since she is not dead yet, so her will would not have been carried out yet. Ten, Catherine berates Mr. Spitzer for the implication that he has not carried out her instructions regarding the black coachman. Eleven, Catherine would accuse Mr. Spitzer of having buried the black coachman in some other grave and having sold the carriage and the horses after she was dead. Catherine claims that the black coachman had complained to her only recently that this was so. Catherine says she is a victim and that Mr. Spitzer may be taking advantage of her. She says Mr. Spitzer how he would feel. She asks Mr. Spitzer how he would feel if he had been buried in another's grave. How would he feel if he had been deceived by the living? How would he feel if he had been his dead brother, loved by her, yet never loving her? All foreshadowing. 12. Mr. Spitzer would sit there in the blowing shadows, his face as gray as wet ashes. According to his memory, the black coachman died several years after his twin brother's death. 
Yet he himself was still laboring under great shock, trying to adjust to a world which should not include his suicidal brother. Thirteen, Catherine couldn't remember the black coachman's name, but she could remember the horse's names. Catherine also claims that the black coachman had been paid for years because money meant nothing to him. This in reality, that a servant requires nothing, could only be conceivable to the rich. She does agree with Mr. Spitzer that he died after his twin brother. Fourteen, a winding sheet is a cloth to wrap a body with for, fu for burial. The most famous is a shroud of Turin. Catherine wanted a grand funeral so that she might still go driving her head self-propelled self her head self-propped among the velvet pillows. She had always intended, of course, something more generous than a well-furnished grave. She had not been selfish and self-centered like Mr. Spitzer. Um, it kind of harkens back to other burial sites as well where you're buried, you're buried with your item. Like, I think Egypt always comes to mind where Egyptian, where they were buried with a boat or it depended, depends and, and uh, um, containers and animals and all kinds of stuff. So to me it sounds similar to this. Okay, 15. Catherine claims she has no survivors which completely overlooks Vera, her daughter. She goes on in detail how she has written many wills or codicils which is a testimony document that is similar but not identical to a will. In them she had always provided for the black coachman going so far as to provide for him then to leave him her entire estate. So if we still thinking about the black coachman as symbolism for her soul, body, spirit, mental, every, that's, she's making provisions for it in her next life. And when it had seemed that she had outlived him, she who was dead, this jeweled corpse, had she not done away with her earlier scruples and left him everything or when he was dead? Catherine questions were the black Catherine questions where the black coachman is, where she is, and where Perone Spitzer is. If she could just locate the black coachman, she could locate everything. The black coachman had known her since childhood, and he had known her brother and sister who had not known themselves, and he had known both Mr. Spitzer's identical as twin buds before the one was fallen away, and he had known which one was fallen. He had known the directions of the winds, the colors of the sky. Well, that's a really cool thing that he had known which one was fallen. So that may be how Catherine knows. And you'll know at the very end of the book. Okay. Using black women, men, and immigrant labor, the United States has a long and exploitative history with domestic work. Catherine in one sentence seems to suggest that the black coachman was the only one to show her some respect by offering his hand. Although he was, according to Catherine, not paid wages, and instead he did his work out of some other motivation, making his actions pure. He knows Catherine's siblings better than they know themselves, and he knew the twin Spitzer brothers. Catherine gave him the ability to know everything. She claims he is the center of it all and her guide. Servants often had more direct contact with the family than the family members themselves and knew their secrets, desires, fears. I guess I better put and. However, they were never considered real family and could be released or removed at any time. Also, the family was never expected to love them the same way or acknowledge it. That love has to be outgrown or forgotten with age. And you can see kind of the same thing happening between Vera and Miss Macintosh. Because Vera thinks when she gets married, well, you know, Miss Macintosh will need to retire because she won't, she'll be married and gone and have her own life. 16. Catherine complains bitterly about Mr. Spitzer's stubborn silence. Why, in her simplest questions, could Mr. Spitzer not answer yea or nay? She knew very well that it was his left ear which was dead and buried in the garden of the dead. Where was his heart buried? 17. Then Catherine falls into forgetfulness. 
18, Mr. Spitzer stays by Catherine's side because otherwise he would have the most retired, the most unassuming life imaginable. Of himself alone, who was he? He had been a failure, although of course in some ways a distinguished one, surpassing any success he knew of and operating on a cosmic scale. Oh, all of this, this whole chapter sent me down a wormhole. Ah, let me see. Uh, okay, okay. So let me start here because this does sort of do it. And there's another, uh, there's another one. Oh, and if anybody knows, okay, I have a recollection of a conversation between God and Satan, and Satan doesn't want, and Satan doesn't want to do the work anymore. And he argues with God, why do I have to keep doing this? Why do I have to keep testing men? And God is trying to talk him into keeping to, to his task because he needs him to intercede and it, because he believes it makes them better. It's some conversation that I know I either read or saw in a movie or read, I read it somewhere. And I'm not saying it's even anything, it's nothing recent. But I, I just remember this conversation and that is, and when, and it's this, like he's operating on a cosmic scale, but he's failure. Like he's setting, okay, so again, let's back up for a second. When we talk about Satan, I'm talking more about, so I had to go and do a bunch of reading on it. Eileen Pagels, I read her book, and the, the other reason, maybe it's an Eileen Pagels book. I never thought of that, but I can't find it. Um, She's, uh, she wrote a book, A History of Satan, a long time ago, many years ago, and I was interested in, and picked up and read it. And she's since read lots of, uh, written lots of other books. And um, so there's where I saw that there was another interpretation. It's the Hebrew interpretation of Satan with a small s. It is not the Satan or the devil. That pronoun, no, that, um, what's it called? Crap, I'm an English teacher. Um, that article, the, a, that was add, added later in the Greek version, but it didn't, wasn't in the Hebrew version from what I've been able to gather through research. And that's what I remember. So there, there was, so in he, the Hebrew version, there was no big S. It was, it was uh, Satan with a little S and that God talked through him. And so the, the biggest example was the story of Job where the angel uh, has sent angel because it's been translated differently but I guess in the Hebrew it's Satan has gone down and is trying to put obstacles in his path to stop him from doing it's not Job that's doing it anyways okay yeah this is going to be a whole big thing anyway so he's putting obstacles in his path making the donkey the the person I can't remember his name it's not Job it's um Balat is uh beating the donkey trying to get the donkey because he doesn't understand why the donkey isn't going where he wants him to go and so that was Satan's job. It was to put obstacles in people's path to, in order to get them on the right path. He was there to test them. And he had to do that through God. That's what started me off on this whole thing between Catherine and Mr. Spitzer as if it's God who's always dreaming because that's what Young thought. Well, what if God dreams and you know, what happens? And, and he's done. And then there's a Valentinianism where, where it's the same thing. God is dreaming. Uh, uh, he's, he's absent. He's done the best he could with creation and now you're on your own. And so Satan is there to put obstacles to try and guide you to the right path. Um, how all of that kind of works together. So I went down that path. 
I'll put all the stuff in it in the, the third book. And then something else came up, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, 19. Vera thinks that since her mother is irrational, then there is no answer to any of her questions. Facing the truth, she should be relieved of the oppressive illusions of life, of her erroneous perceptions of things where no, where no things were. Who is Mr. Spitzer to rob or to disturb the dreamer in the precarious dream? She would never recover from her prolonged illness unless, when she was cured, she should die. 20. Mr. Spitzer's facial expression was always one of both denial and flight. He could not say no unless he should say yes, though yet the perfect truth was that which he must always search for. Catherine would torment Mr. Spitzer about his dead brother, whether he had not always been deceived by some greater jokester who had played upon him by sleight of hand this trick of life when he himself was dead. Were the thoughts he thought his own or his brother's, perverted and distracted by this monstrous presence, faceless in the deep? Hello, I, I don't know what's wrong with the hummingbird feeder and I don't have any more. There you go. Is it okay? Okay. Um, could he be sure that some superior intelligence had not dreamed this enormous, moribund joke? Were not these his brother's cufflinks he was wearing, double horses' heads, carved in mother of pearl, he having appropriated these to wear to his brother's funeral? It was not the ivory-headed cane his brother's too? Had he ever paid his brother's gambling debts? Was the funeral even paid for? 21. Catherine continues tormenting Mr. Spitzer, because she knows the truth. Did his right hand know what his left hand did? Was he a good man or a knave? A thief? A purloiner of the things and ideas that did not belong to him? Mr. Spitzer returns property to rightful heirs as a lawyer, but Catherine accuses him of taking the properties of others, a dead ear, a slumber's face, and impersonating his brother, and what if there were really two of them, not one? 22. Oh, and also the love triangle where Catherine who loves Perone, she loves the, the immoral, the, the, the uh, something with, uh, loves someone who's only concerned with earthly desires, and she doesn't love Joachim, who presents himself as, who is, in the descriptions, no, he is described as pure and gentle and uh, considerate. And he loves Catherine, but Catherine doesn't pay attention to him. So that whole triangle thing, that whole triangle thing. Uh, okay. 22. Catherine wonders, would he drop dead or just go on as if nothing had happened? She would ponder the answers to these and many other questions, the answers which she herself provided. Which mirrors what Mrs. Hodgkin does, too. It's, it's fine to talk to yourself, but when you start answering yourself, then we know you're insane. <laughs> 23. Catherine imagines he is fleeing from mortal law while she is not afraid of all the fantastical things she sees. 24. Catherine says that Mr. Spitzer is often surprised by many minor discrepancies, cracks, flaws. When he searched through the po pockets of his great coat, he was always turning up something which he had not anticipated, things that belonged to Perone. These things surprise him more than anything else. Mr. Spitzer felt strange things sticking to him, to his own ultimate consciousness, and it was he who should have died, he who had preferred the lonely ways, his brother who should have lived. With the nightmarish certainty, he was always finding things that belonged to his dead brother, almost as if Joachim is being haunted by his brother Perone, his brother's high, cynical laughter disturbing his most peaceful sleep. Mr. Spitzer confesses that he had never hoped for anything except his brother's or Catherine's love. Uh, it's a very poignant statement when you read it. 25. Mr. Spitzer has a clam-digging manservant who knows everything about the beach. 
medusae are small aquatic animals related to fish. The manservant swears he always brews two cups of coffee, but Mr. Spitzer only remembers drinking one. The manservant insists Mr. Spitzer drinks both cups. Manchurian is a region in Northeast Asia. They are an ethnic, minor ethnic minority in China. Mr. Spitzer reads the water-stained newspapers of a week ago or a year ago or a decade ago, trying to catch up with current events, trying to follow to the best of his unconcentrated ability. And in spite of the multiple confusions around him, the Manchurian or some other conflict, which made him always wish he were well out of this sad, mistaken world. He, was he, would he found himself always on the losing side with the fallen as to these lost battles. 26. Mr. Spitzer also believes that his plate, glass, knife, and fork are moved around. The manservant again swears that it is Mr. Spitzer who moves everything. Mr. Spitzer is certain it is not him and watches himself through a broken kitchen mirror. Mirrors are used numerous times throughout the novel, and in, in this case it is important that Mr. Spitzer's mirror is broken and everything he sees through it is crooked. When these things happen, it frightened him. 27. When Mr. Spitzer calmed down, he thought that these strange things happened because of the manservant's inefficiency and poor housekeeping. His house is described as being in shambles. Mr. Spitzer dresses very elegantly and was in his own shy way, and was in his own shy way, was tremulously proud of, if being practically all he had, he having suffered irreparable losses on a grand scale, those the world knew not of would perhaps never know. 28. Mr. Spitzer was also troubled by being mistaken for his dead twin brother when he walked to distant city streets. Perron might never have had a reason to mention Joaquim. Sometimes Joaquim would not correct the other person when he was not his dead, that he was not his dead brother Perron. Sometimes he would find that he must simply deny his brother's continued life, that he must simply and tersely disclaim all knowledge of what the other fellow had been up to or otherwise. He would be involving himself in all kinds of present difficulties, some quite beyond his means, even old lawsuits. I know I'm, I don't know if I've mentioned it here, but um, I have noted it elsewhere that Mr. Spitzer not only dresses like Perone, wears Perone's things, but he also wears a couple of things like Jock, which is Catherine's dead uh, husband. 29. Joaquim describes his brother. It was apparent that much as he had known of his brother, there were still ways in which his brother's life could, sh could shock him by force of new circumstances. For the one had been, in spite of his outward carelessness, the deeper, more brilliant fellow and capable, though indifferent to music, of far greater variations on one theme than he. Also, Mr. Spitzer tried to protect his brother, to act in that way which he considered to be, even now, to his brother's best interests, to surround him in a manner of speaking with the capacious cloak of his own protection. 30. To Joaquim, his brother seemed to live in other eyes, enjoying of caress and mortality. Mr. Spitzer would allow the fleshy illusions to persist, even at the expense of, if necessary, his own life. Perron had associated with shady characters. Their outward appearance may have been the same, but they were also very different people who operated in different worlds. 31. Joaquim describes the differences between himself and Perron. His brother had been impatient, unable to wait an hour, and Mr. Spitzer had waited, loving my mother through all these empty years, no thought of revenge ever entering into his heart as it would have entered into his brother's heart. His brother had been quick-tempered, quick to take offense, and Mr. Spitzer was slow, stumbling, fumbling, barking his shins in the dark, sliding on icy pavements, bumping into lampposts. Mr. Spitzer was pursued by people who believed that he owed them money, and by others who suddenly wanted to pay a debt to him, which much to his surprise. 32. Meanwhile, Catherine cannot empathize with Mr. Spitzer's issues. What had she ever seen outside herself? There was no Mr. Spitzer. 33. 
also oh never mind 33 mr spitzer confides in Catherine, even though she is not listening his somber confession of being not his own of a dark counterpart running through all his nights and days his dead brother's life we get a hint of Mr. Spitzer's referring to music and a melody that is distracting to his ears. He describes it as the alien music of chaos which disturbed his peaceful mind and which was not his present responsibility. Though surely if he waited long enough, as he would ponderously explain, there should be some further clarification, some ultimate harmony. Joaquin says he prefers the last footstep, the last doorway, the music of perfect silence, while Perone had preferred the last chance. Mr. Spitzer is trying to make sense of his grief over his brother's death and asks Catherine, had my mother hurt him and could she see him now? Could she see his face? 34. Catherine surprises Mr. Spitzer by saying she had heard every word. Her conclusion is that it was all quite clear to her, this which came after life, a beautiful tumult of undying confusions in her mind. Perone had, had not attained to heavenly harmony. If there should be a heaven beyond all chaos, it would be the same there as it is on earth. There should be the same irresolutions, the same flaws in the heart of God as there had been in the heart of man. The only solution was a further problem which could not be solved. Catherine imagined as surely as God imagined him, for he was a dream like all the others, and so was God. That invisible quality through which the, invis the visible must move until it should be seen no more. Catherine mourned Perone as well. 35. In this funny, self-deprecating statement, my mother was always tormenting Mr. Spitzer by seeing what was not there, by sometimes not seeing him, though it was his own position that he, with his obesity, took up a great deal of space. 36. Catherine dives back into her hallucinatory world. Sufficient in her eyes to the fleeting or protracted instant was instant was the appearance of the reality, and it was not her way to challenge as to some quality beyond the visible. All were real in her enchanted eyes, and she asked for no further verification, ordinarily than just that she saw them. Palimpsest is a manuscript page, either from a book or scroll that has been washed off or scraped off so it can be used again. I love this book by Catherine Valente called Palimpsest. It's one of my favorite books. And every time I see the word, it reminds me I want to read it again. Uh, Catherine remarks, she would ordinarily not ask for the appearance beyond the appearance. She remarks about a dog named Socrates. Socrates is a Greek philosopher who wrote no text of his own, but is credited as one of the founders of Western philosophy. In the work Republic written by Plato, there is a Socratic dialogue. In it, Socrates argues that the dog is very much like a philosopher because the dog distinguishes the face of a friend and of an enemy only by the criterion of knowing and not knowing. It is the idea of knowing and not knowing. It is, the, it is this idea of knowing something elemental, friend versus foe, testing knowledge and ignorance, that determines what something is and how people behave. And that is why God is spelled dog backwards. <laughs> Catherine admits that Mr. Spitzer makes her have feelings. Oh, and she makes a great... Oh, okay, it just reminded me of a quote later on in the book that was really good. Catherine admits that Mr. Spitzer makes her have feelings of hostile doubt, perhaps because he was flesh and blood and real, making her feel that there was that about him which exceeded her comprehension and might be vastly different from anything either she or God had dreamed. She claims she is omniscient, for she had a third eye in her forehead, the eye of her omniscience. 
The third eye is a mystical or esoteric concept which provides perception beyond normal sight. She confesses that Mr. Spitzer was always in danger, it seemed, of passing beyond her scope of knowledge, of threatening her omniscience, which knew just what there was to know. He was the lost perception. 37. Catherine considers Mr. Spitzer the most doubtful just through his being visible to others. For who was he and where had he come from, and was that the dew of the grave upon his cheeks? She would see him calculating through a haze of distance. She would see him calculatingly through a haze of distance. <clears throat> if Mr. Spitzer was, as he claimed to be, merely this frame corporal, corporeal, then how could it be that he had gathered flesh in his grave, that he was not a skeleton with an hourglass in his hands? 39. Catherine admits something about him evaded her definition of what was possible or true to life. Catherine confuses him with the black coachman. Why should he not answer questions as to the present whereabouts of the black coachman, the white horses, and her dead self? Catherine's telltale sign that she is dreaming, foam trickling from the corners of her lips, and now it might be known by those who knew her best that she was going somewhere. 41. Catherine ordered her servants to bring her body, bring her soul, and also all her accoutrements to show off her wealth, for she was dead and she was going somewhere. Mrs. Astor refers to Ca Caroline Shermahorn Astor, a famous American socialite who led the 400, the list of New York Society's Gilded Age. Mrs. Vanderbilt is Grace Graham. I think I'm going to put maybe, maybe refer to ah, Shoot, I don't know. Um... Mrs. Vanderbilt may refer to Grace Graham Wilson Vanderbilt, another American socialite of the Vanderbilt family. 42. Catherine has said she was very much confused by clarities, and her mind was left in almost total darkness. She believes she is with the black coachman, but she cannot see where he is taking her. 43. Catherine can only see the back of the black coachman's head. 44. Catherine asks Mr. Spitzer which city she's in. She believes she is in Moscow, and she asks him again. If it is before or after the revolution, Tsar Kolokol, the king of the bells, is known as the Tsar Bell. It is the largest bell in the world that has never rung. It cracked during a fire after it was completed. 45. Catherine describes what the carriage means to her. Her body was the carriage, and her soul, now it seemed, was the passenger. Well, hello. Did you forget that was there? I'm taking it down at the end of August. Yes. Okay. Um, so here we get Catherine's uh, description of what the carriage means to her. Her body was the carriage, and her soul, now it seemed, was the passenger, and her horses were her will, and the coachman was her conscience. So she's looking for her conscience uh, uh, when she calls the black coachman, I guess. Unless she means the whole thing. I, I don't know. Only things are out of place, and Catherine is confused. There is another passenger who she believes has stolen her carriage. Was it any old beggar this passenger picked up at any street corner and any passenger riding in her carriage and wearing these old rags? Would any old horses do? Catherine cried out to the coachman, how often must she be betrayed? Catherine asks her questions about the coachman, a.k.a. her conscience. So this, so then this also ties into what I was looking up about Satan testing Job because Job appears... I think I have this right. Like, again, I did all this yesterday and I spent three hours, three or four hours, no, four hours on it. So, um, 
uh, I think it's Job, who then finally gets an audience with God because he's passed all Satan's tests and never given up faith in God. But he's in rags, and God is upset and said, why is this person here dressed in rags? And he insists that they be clothed in fine raiment and stuff like that. So because I was looking up all that, it, it matched what here with this, uh, this uh, passenger dressed in rags that's with Catherine in the carriage. Catherine wonders about what was the case of Spitzer versus Spitzer? Why had he never told her of that most distinguished legal adventure which the world knew not of? The lamentable case of the late Spitzer versus Spitzer, that in which he must appear as both the offender and the accuser, the defense and the accusation. Catherine knew this, this which took most of his time and destroyed his silent music, even the unwritten score, and made him seem a man who did not know himself and who was disturbed by the beautiful minor discrepancies. Those she loved, those his dead brother had also loved, the things which did not add up. Catherine wonders which was he, the shadow or the man, and was there to be no decision, no outcome, but a constant irresolution and suspension and doubt? Which was Alpha and which was Omega? Which side had he appeared on? Who was versing whom and where? And that was also, I, I decided, I looked at the parts. There's I, So far I have 20 parts. I really want to keep it to 20 parts. In the uh, uh, analysis, symbolism, themes part of at the, uh, in the third volume that I'm uh, writing. And so I did add the section. I moved to something around and add the section, or got part, part 20 and put in time. Because in the later chapters, uh, the other chapters I'm working on are the ones with Esther. And this idea, oh, and in when I was looking up uh, about the devil and, and, and the Hebrew interpretation of it, there is also, it runs through Islam, Hebrew, and I don't know if Christianity so much, this idea of the caravan, and it's definitely that, I think in our linear, if you take West, Western culture, we're linear and we're moving from a point A to point B to point C to point D. I mean, we're moving straight forward in a line. And at least that's how, you know, that's why you have to be on time. That's why you have to do things within a certain time. That's why, like, okay, the seasons are there, but it doesn't matter. Um, and it appears that Miss McIntosh is very upset because of the calendar. Oh, fine, this comes up too a lot uh, later. But it, she makes it very clear that she's upset with the calendar being changed. I'm assuming because she preferred a lunar type of calendar where there were 13 months and there was more of a cycle instead of 12, there's more of a cycle of 13. And so, and, and maybe that uh, also evolves with the, uh, um, this idea of time being circular um, coming back around again. And so there's this really big idea, and I did add the section on time so I can explore it further. Um, the one that, the, the person that I've read, Neil Douglas Klotz, uh, who talks about this mysticism in, within Christian Islam and, and uh, Judaism, um, is the idea of the caravan and this idea that we are not going forward to some unknown place and time we are moving forward in order to get back to the beginning. And that is what he's trying to get across in many ways, trying to describe it. Uh, 
that we that it's circular we're we're not there's not a final evolution that we get to there's not a final point in our destination it is a getting back to we are rushing forward to get back to the beginning which is the end and then it starts the cycle all over again so it's the best explanation and as and he you know and he says it's very hard to wrap your mind it's hard to conceptualize especially from a western point of view um, this idea that it is circular and you are, it's like the, the serpent eating the tail, it, it, eating its tail. You're getting back to the beginning. You're always moving. It's, it's very, very different way of looking at the world. And I believe indigenous peoples had this kind of, of thing. I can't, I still can't find the book. It was written at least 30 years ago about uh, a judge who worked with indigenous people and was working with um, the idea of justice. I believe his name's Riley. I'm not John Riley, but I'm not sure. I, I just the covers have changed. Even if I didn't know, the covers have changed. But um. But yeah, all of that plays into it. So I'm going to try and do a part just on that and try and get some explanation on it in mind. Anyways, yeah, I added it. Ah, fifty. Uh, go for a little bit longer. Catherine wonders, why, if Mr. Spitzer was himself, should his calling card have fluttered down from the ceiling among all the others, those of the dead guests? Was there not some explanation he could give? 51. Catherine accuses Mr. Spitzer of not answering her legal questions. Why, whenever... Okay, never mind. I'm... Um, let me finish. Well, never mind. Okay, I finished at 50. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye.